in a world full of complex challenges. We need more open-hearted opportunities to express ourselves. In a world full of heated debate, we need more open-minded opportunities to listen to each other. In a world full of fear and anxiety, we need more chances to chill and turn toward one another. Join us as we host conversations with educators, artists, activists, community members, and youth to surface the intergenerational wisdom we need to understand, adapt to, and solve the urgent issues facing humanity. Welcome back to the second series of the Chill Podcast. Callie, Heather, Lois, and Louise, we're all here. This is the sixth episode in our series on how climate change is changing classrooms. And in today's episode, Lois is going to share about a mural project that she's been working on with an elementary school in Boston. She's collaborating with scientists and educators to help students explore the impact of sea level rise on their community and the wildlife habitat. So we're excited to learn about this project, how it came to be, its mission for helping teachers deepen students' curiosity about the environment in their own communities and the world at large. But before we get started, let's check in. Well, I'll check in. Good morning. I'm really happy to be here recording this series that we're doing. It just feels so congruent to me. Our question is climate change changing classrooms because here in Oakland, California, where I live, we are going into a next series of storms flooding and just extreme snowfall, and they're predicting real danger to people and to property. And already, I mean, just from the last set of storms that we had, they still, there are people in the San Bernardino County mountains that have been, you know, trapped by snow and the emergency folks aren't able to get to them. And it's a really, it's a very bad situation. It's a real state of emergency. So that's the climate that we are living with here right now. And I also this week, I am on the board for a nonprofit called Common Vision, which is greening communities and schoolyards with gardens. And so we had a tree planting ceremony. This week is Arbor Week. And that was a really positive thing to be a part of. So I'm ready for our conversation this morning. Thank you, Louise. This is Callie. And in Utah, we are having one of our, it's a winter that reminds me of my childhood, lots and lots of snow. And they've said that in our mountains, we have the um, snowpack equal to 1983 when we had flooding in our streets. Our main streets downtown were sandbagged so that the rivers of water could come down from our mountains. And we have that much snow again. Ski resorts have had to close because the snow is as tall as the chairlifts. Wow. And we just keep getting more and more snow. And of course, I have a leak in my roof and it can't be fixed till the snow stops. And yet it, yeah, when you need a, a leak fixed, it's the very conditions that you can't fix the leak. Our big catastrophe right now is our Great Salt Lake drying up, and my heart just hopes that the snowpack will come down slowly enough that they can channel it to the Great Salt Lake. Now, if it gets warm real fast and the snowpack comes down too quickly, that's not going to work out that way. But watching all of this is fascinating. I have so much respect for my colleagues who are scientists and the work they're putting in with our legislators and 
with the public opinion and informing people and teaching people the science behind what's really happening. I, you know, I watched people really put their heart and soul into bringing people good information and how it relates to our daily lives right here as we lose our lake that might threaten all of our lives by releasing arsenic into the air. You know, it, we have this pending possible catastrophe and it feels really relevant. And right here in our own area, our question of how is this impacting our schools, I have yet to see schools uh, really looking at this because we have a political climate where if teachers talk about hard things in the classroom, they are criticized. And yeah, I'm really glad that we're having these conversations and hope we can impact classrooms and conversations in ways that keep teachers and communities safe without yeah, I don't know what to say about the, the volatility in people getting angry over certain topics being discussed. That's a piece. I don't know how we'll address that. Hmm. That's my check-in. Well, I'll go next. Tonight, I get to go to the Institute of Contemporary Art and see Bilty Jones yeah. dance. No. I'm so excited. Wow. Oh, I'm so jealous. Oh, that I'm really so, so excited. Yeah. And I'm going with a friend who I don't get to see very often. She's a, a visual artist and so is her husband, a visual artist, and her son is an author and I taught him. And anyway, it, that's really a nice thing. And I'm just really excited to talk about this topic, uh, about this mural, because I've, I've been there a lot and things have been moving along. So it's been dominant on my mind. So that's it. Oh my gosh, Bill T. Jones. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I've got this wave of jealousy that just went through me. <laughs> like, I love Bill T. Jones. But also, I think I'm coming to today's conversation a little bit of a Pollyanna. I'm very much in like a dreamer state because listening to Lois tell me about her project in preparation for our conversation today. And then also working on some water projects with Cali, where we're, we are sponsoring, hosting a global water dance event on the shores of our Utah Lake. And we had a meeting about that yesterday. And I just, my mind is exploding with ideas for projects with children to create and explore and experiment and fall in love with their environment. And so I'm like, on another planet in terms of what is possible, but I am like so giddy there. So I'm really excited to talk about your project, Lois. And I hope if time permits, I get to like <laughs> unleash some of my desires to, to do some projects with kids. And it's also probably because I'm still in the master's thesis mode and it's literally the only thing I can do and have time for. And so my reprieve is to go to dreamland and just conceive of these things. Like I can feel it in my elbows and my joints and my arms that like, I just need to build something like because <laughs> this is not working for me anymore. <laughs> so anyway, that's me today. So Lois, let's talk about your project. All right. So I want to start by talking about this psychoanalyst and pediatrician and developmental psychologist, DJ Winnicott. He was a 20th century guy, died in 1971. And he's, I mean, you may know him for uh, his work on transitional objects, you know, the, the blanket that your kid can't give up, <laughs> that's Winnicott. But he also did this 
thing about good enough parenting. And basically, it was like the normal parental love that kids need to develop into, you know, good, happy, stable personalities. You know, you don't have to be an amazing mother. You just have to, it's just that normal relationship with your kid. So I want to think about good enough in relationship to climate change projects. You know, what is like normal, good enough education that would make these projects okay? So this project that I've been working on is an offshoot of a research project on extreme weather that's been funded by the National Science Foundation for the past four years and will take a no-cost extension and extend it to five years. And we decided last year that we should do some experiments with extant communities of color to see if we could get a broader demographic to be influenced by this project. And so I'm working in an inclusive Spanish bilingual public school in Boston, and it's built, the land it's on is 10 inches above the current sea level. And it's, the school is right on Boston Harbor, but the kids don't have any access to the harbor. It's fenced away and it's weeds and industrial garbage and stuff beyond the fence. But I'm working with the art teacher and the fifth through eighth grade students. Many of them are recent immigrants to Boston and with their documentation status is varied and many are Spanish only speakers. So the project is that we're making a clay tile mural about sea level rise. And the relevance to this community is that their playgrounds at 10 inches are going to flood. They already flood and they're going to continue flooding. Like by 2030, it's going to be 14 inches. 2050, it's going to be 33 inches. And 2070, it's supposed to be 55 inches. And those are probably, well, they, they might be low estimates. We want to raise community awareness about the impact of sea level rise on this community and help them to understand nature-based solutions to sea level rise, which are to, you can elevate or you can build things that block the wave action, or you can build things that absorb, like marshes absorb water. And we hope that that will motivate community planning. So that's the project in a nutshell. Now, what's happened is that I've been really ambivalent about my expertise or lack of expertise. I jumped in, you know, and I learned a lot by muddling through everything from, you know, how do you design and cite a mural? And, you know, how do we collaborate with people who have their own agenda and their own program? And where do I get tiles and glazes? And how do we transfer drawings to tiles? And then there's the science, you know, like what is healthy sea life in Boston Harbor? And what is predicted to happen to that with sea level rise and how much. And anyway, it was just the sea of stuff I didn't know. And so I was calling on friends who are experts in various ways. The mass art ceramics department has been really generous and firing all the tiles for us. We put them in pizza boxes. Where do you get pizza boxes? I know the whole thing. It's just everything has been one question after another. And what I end up worrying about is like, where are all the things I value in art education? Like I value choice, student choice. I value revision, you know, joy, uh, personal expression, problem solving, personal engagement, connection, commitment, imagination, reflection, playfulness, close observation. You know, I mean, it's like, that's all the stuff. And 
I don't know how much of that there's been. And then there are other things that I value about education generally, like developing understanding and fostering thinking and acquiring, selecting, and using information and judging its quality and documenting and reflecting and personal commitment. And again, I'm not sure all of those things were able to happen because of the constraints that we were working within. So what satisfies me about the project, which you know might make it good enough, is the collaboration. I've really enjoyed collaborating with this young art teacher. She's just been open and energetic and positive and fun. I've really enjoyed working with this community. I didn't know anything about East Boston, and it is a fascinating neighborhood in the city and beautiful, and it's being gentrified. And, you know, I just wasn't really aware of just how potent a place it was. I'm really satisfied by the fact that the school is proximate to the harbor. I mean, it's right there. And so the localness of the problem and any potential solution is exciting to me. And then the other thing is the public visual permanence of this information that we're making in the mural, which I hope can be a platform for future learning. So those are the things that really excite me about this project. But what bothers me about the project, what worries me, is whether the kids learned enough about sea level rise. I don't know if they did. I don't know if they know why biodiversity matters. They know a lot about the biodiversity, but so what? I'm wondering if the kids really felt engaged by the project. And, you know, if we could have done a lot more to do that. But again, that there were time constraints and we didn't. And do the kids really see how the project connects to them? I'm just not sure that they do. So anyway, what do you think, Chillers? Mm-hmm. What does make a good enough project in climate education? Well, I applaud you for jumping in, Lois, you and your colleagues. And, you know, one of the things that makes me think about is that grant-funded projects, we've all had a lot of experience with that kind of thing. And they're often problematic in schools. You know, you get a grant and so you have something to offer the school and the school has a rich school life and lots of mandates. And so incorporating a grant project is often problematic, right? But What I think about as I listen to you describe this project and as we've talked about it over these last months, I think about what we heard when we talked to Trina and Constance in California about the teachers that they were working with around climate change and how they surveyed the children. And the teachers and the facilitators of the project were surprised to find out that kids were thinking about climate change all the time and wondering, why aren't adults doing anything? And so I can't imagine that that's different for the children in Boston at Umana Elementary School, and that as they are having the opportunity to paint tiles with wildlife that they're learning is right there surrounding their school, and as they see you and your colleagues, as you put the panels together and they see, oh, this is about helping us and helping our families understand how climate change is going to change our environment, the kids must be really grateful that that's happening. And and another thing that I frequently think about is that I think as a mom and as an educator, I've experienced that children 
feel like, oh, I don't know what to do. I'm confused. I don't know the right thing to do. And that's something about me. And I think it's really, really important for adults to be transparent about, I'm learning new things. I'm, you know, 25 years old. I'm 55 years old. I'm 65 years old. And I still don't have confidence about what I'm doing, but that isn't going to stop me. I'm going to be vulnerable. I mean, all the things that you're doing, you know, collaborating, pulling in people who have skills that you don't necessarily have are really rich things, I think, for children to see. And I just can't imagine that it isn't very reassuring for children to see this project happening and what you're all doing, as well as that I can't imagine that because it will be a permanent piece at the school, that it's just an amazing launch for future curriculum and teacher professional development and all of that. I, yeah, it just seems really bold to me and brilliant. Yeah, I wanted to respond that amazing educators, artists like yourself, do good enough projects. What makes a good enough project is having an excellent art educator in a system of schooling that is not conducive to the kind of art making that they're used to. But also, Louise, as you were talking, I was thinking about when I was in second grade, I want to tell a story to elucidate what I know about children's learning about the environment. My parents and my uncles and my aunts, my whole extended family, took several vacations to Yellowstone National Park. They were not education-focused trips. However, being in that national park is by nature an educational experience, but it was about family bonding. But these trips influenced me to a point where I thought my second grade teacher gave me an opportunity to lead an art project in my classroom. But this is also like a story of Heather's character as a curriculum designer from a very young age. <laughs> That in my memory, my second grade teacher gave me the opportunity to be the art teacher in the class. And I really wanted all the students in my classroom to feel and know what I knew about mud pots from Yellowstone National Park. Because I remember standing by these muddy, sulfur, gray, gooey pots that would just like bubble up and it felt like something from the, you know, Jurassic period. And like my imagination was just exploding. And I don't know where I got this idea, but I was like, everybody needs a coffee filter, which I grew up in a Mormon culture. We don't drink coffee. How I was introduced to coffee filters, I don't know. <laughs> but they were the perfect material, right? And they they rest, like they elevate with their light weight and the shape of the coffee filter. They elevate like a bubble. Now, it, it's not one that moves, but in my mind... I probably should have recognized what a dancer I was in second grade because it should have been a dance class and not a visual art activity. But these coffee filters, if we could just paint them gray, would be mud pots. <laughs> and I could tell the whole class everything that I learned about mud pots in my junior ranger program. And to me, it was this huge learning and love of like the place that I'd been and this experience and this desire to learn. But in hindsight, looking back at it, it's like painting a coffee filter gray. <laughs> that is like all I needed to have this rich experience inside of me that connected me to a love of land and like earth. Mm -hmm. So what seemed to be the quality that influenced you was that you had a powerful experience and you wanted to share it and you were allowed to come up with a way to, to share it with other people. 
So that I think goes back to this whole notion that there has to be some choice or some agency or, or something. Yeah. And you know, that's what I worry about in this project is that there might not have been enough. There was some, you know, they got to pick their animals. They got to make a collage. Uh, they got to, you know, pick their plants and animals and make their own things. But then in, in lots of the panels, they were just sort of painting things that adults had designed. But it's the beginning, right? It's the beginning. Yeah. You know, when listening to Heather, I am thinking about there's this video where Neil deGrasse Tyson is talking to a six-year-old about the meaning of life. Have you guys seen that video? So Neil deGrasse Tyson is an expert, right? He's an astrophysicist. He is an expert. And he's giving a talk and this little six-year-old comes up and says to him in the question and answer, what is the meaning of life? And so Neil deGrasse Tyson lays down on the auditorium theater floor where he's giving this talk. And he says, well, the meaning of life is always revealing itself to us, is what he says. But then he says to this kid, do your parents allow you to go into the kitchen and bang on the pots and pans? Do you ever do that? And the kid said no. And he says, well, if you and why don't you do it? And the child says, well, it's because my parents think it's too noisy. And then Neil deGrasse Tyson says to this child, well, you should say to your parents, why did you even have children if we can't be noisy? And then what he says to the child is, this is what I recommend that you do. I recommend that you go out into nature and I recommend that you pull things up out of the ground and you look at how they're connected to each other and you take them apart and you smell them and you and so basically his best advice to this 6-year-old is to do some version of what Heather was doing with her second grade classroom like they just experiment just look at things that you've experienced and think about what they're like and do something with it and touch it and hold it, explore. And don't be afraid to explore. And maybe that's good advice for teachers. Maybe what we need to be saying to teachers is explore, do what Lois did, you know, just come up with an idea and then think about how well did that go? And then ask your kids, how well did that go? And what was confusing? And then begin again, like kind of go with our interest in our questions. I think it's important to remember that we're educators. We want to assess what the kids know. We want to check our success. But a project like this isn't about our success. And the most important things we learn in life can't be assessed or measured in these ways. And and Lois, as a, a researcher, it's natural for Lois to look for this evidence. As educators, it's natural for us to look for evidence. So Louise just made it really simple. Ask the kids, what did you think? How did that feel? And then begin again. The reflective process of learning for the teacher, if you put your heart and soul into something and you do something really wonderful and then you reflect on it and you begin again, that's enough. So I thought your phrase on that, Louise, was really important. You reflect and you begin again and you keep bringing more to the kids and you ask them, what are you learning? What are you doing? And then we have to realize if we've done something really meaningful, it launched a longitudinal process. These kids from year to year to year as they watch this water rise, how will they reflect on this wall? How much meaning will be developed over time because they know questions to ask because they have the experience? What teacher could have ever imagined that the coffee filters 
Heather thought about were more informational and instructive to her than the mud pots or the lecture the teacher did. Her learning came in her attachment to it. No teacher could design that, control that, or assess that. We have to allow it, and we want to inspire the miracle. So I think a large part of teaching, the reason teaching happens within relationships is because we have to trust that we're planting seeds where people feel safe in a relationship to pull out the coffee filters, to pull out the paint, to pull out the mud. It's not about the product. It's about that process. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that we ever get to assess that. Hmm. That's the journey. That's when Neil deGrasse Tyson says, just take it apart and look at it. Do the journey. Be in it. Ask and begin again. Teach kids to do that and teach them that they may never know the meaning of something for years to come as it unfolds. If one of our limitations in education is we want the answers now, we want to assess and put it in a box and check it off and say, oh, I did a good job. That's not how it is. We aren't in charge of what these beautiful beings are in interpreting. But the teachers I work with, I would like to say to them what Louise said. If you show up, you put in your all, and you ask yourself the questions, how is this working? You ask the kids, how is this working? And you keep beginning again. That's good enough. Well, I think this project, the thing that worried me, still worries me, is that it was too product focused. You know, it was about making a mural and that maybe a lot of the process of making the mural got lost or the kid, you know, the kid's engagement or the kid's delight or curiosity or the kids doing their own research or the kids, you know, making it up themselves or going out into the playground and looking at the playground and the relationship to the water. And, you know, there just wasn't the time to really, or we didn't make the time to do that. I mean, one thing was that we thought the project was going to be five classes. And of course we started in early October and we're still picking away at it. So Anyway, the whole process product thing is, I think, really tricky. And I'm a real process person. And honest to God, Callie, I don't want to assess anything. I just want to, I want those kids to be engaged and curious. And I'm just, I don't know if they are. The beauty of your product, Lois, is it's going to be there over time. They have time to engage their families, their friends. They have time for more conversations. There's a new process being born because the product is in place. And they go to that wall every day and they say, I made this square. What do I remember about making that square? What do I want to tell somebody about that square? Part of the process is just beginning. You know, I think it is conversation, Callie. And I don't think we can underestimate the power of conversation. That's why we do this podcast and it has to start in our classrooms. And we need to listen to children. As I'm thinking about a few years ago, a state assembly person came to visit Peralta Elementary School in Oakland, which is an arts integrated school, like for 30 years. And it's famous for being an arts integrated school. So this assembly person comes to the school and meets with the fourth grade classroom where she gets them up in front of the kids and says, your parents voted for me. I represent your community's interests in Sacramento. And I think that arts in schools is really important. And so I fight for that. And so one of the children raises his hand and he says, you know what you should be fighting for? You should be fighting for the animals in the watershed who are losing their habitat because that's what he was. And so, 
you know, I mean, it's like we need to ask kids and let them talk because then we find out what's important to them and what's on their minds. We make so many assumptions about what's going on in there. And that's the big trick. And also, I think we all know and have experienced it's the great promise of arts in the classrooms, right? Because it provides so many multiple ways for us to see what's going on in those hearts and minds. I love that story, Louise. I know, I loved it too. <laughs> I wanna talk about the studio structures because you haven't gotten to the exhibition part of this project yet, Lois, right? Right. Where there's a showing, like a gallery would come at the end of some school art projects or For me as a performing artist and dance teacher, it was always like the semester stage performance. Heather, let's clarify studio structures because that's an important teaching pedagogy from Lois's book, Studio Thinking. She analyzed visual art classrooms and found there's four structures that work in a studio setting that we have found also work across the performing arts. One is lecture demonstration. You give the kids the information that they need, the background information and the skills they need to do the project. The next one is students at work, and that's where students spend most of their time in great classrooms. Students are working most of the time, then critique and reflection, and those happen in class. Then the last studio structure is performance or exhibition, where you would share your work in a culminating way. I remember teaching, it's amazing what one night on stage for two hours does for the learning of my students. Like, oftentimes it's project based, like, I try to get, you know, the students take on like, what do you want to dance about? But I choose the theme for the concert and I kind of, you know, put on the constraints and then when they don't really know what they want and the time is limited, I'm like, all right, we're doing this. So I get these feelings of like, how engaged are the students really? Do they really care about what they're dancing about? Are they really learning anything? Or is this just like to put on a performance for their parents? That's a good product. And so we get to the performance and then the three weeks that I have after their performance, they're like best friends. They want to talk to me. They want to show me dance videos. Like all of a sudden, just because they had this performance, this exhibition of their experience, even if they weren't acting like they cared about it, it was like the biggest thing for them. And one more thought, I've sent my mom, who's a photographer, to two schools this past month to document and interview students in the process of preparing a theater product, a musical. And the things my mom is getting from students, I mean, these educators she's visiting are great, but the students are saying things like that Louise has just shared, like students say the darndest things, but it's because they're behind the camera. It's like they're at their rehearsal, but the moment my mom brings out the camera, it's like performance mode and I'm going to say, and share what this moment provides. So I wonder, do you anticipate, I would anticipate some more, the satisfaction coming in your showing of the mural when it's finally open. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I mean, we're certainly going to have a a big event, probably either the last week of April or the first week of May. And, you know, I want to get Boston Press there and, you know, really make a splash because it is a community project. I mean, the parents have been involved in it and various teachers and... You know, I have to share this story. When I, this is 20 years ago, when I was first working at the County Office of Education, 
And at the County Office of Education, we were responsible for operating the schools for incarcerated youth. And so we made a project with the Berkeley Rep to do a writing and playwriting project. And so folks came in from the Berkeley Rep and we brought in coaches and worked with the youth and they wrote these plays. And then at the end, equity actors came in and performed the plays on the stage for all the students to watch. And the young people had printed out copies of their play and they were going around the night of the performance. It practically makes me cry to people in the audience and asking people in the audience to sign their transcript of their play. So, you know, usually the person who has written the play is signing autographs, but they were going around and asking people, please sign my, like as an acknowledgement, right? Okay, now it's three or four months later. And I had been working late that night. I'm driving home from my office in Hayward to my house in Oakland. And I stop at a liquor store to get, I don't know, Diet Coke or something like that, or a glass bottle of wine. I don't know. Anyhow, on my way home. And this young man who was a part of that project comes running up to me, Miss Louise, Miss Louise. And he reaches into his jacket and pulls out the script and says, remember this? It was so important to him. He is carrying this script around in his jacket. So we can't underestimate how important it is to give young people the opportunity to get up and express themselves. But I can also see that, you know, with this project, Lois, there could, you know, in their classrooms, they could be writing plays that they perform that are about, you know, it could be dance around the sea level rise, or it could be, you know, the different animals in the local environment. I don't know, but it seems like there's lots of opportunity for making it this experience showing how powerful it really is. Yeah. And I have no idea if any of that will happen. I don't know. I mean, I hope that it catalyzes something like that. And I think I just have to let go. And it's just like, you know, here it is. I hope you do something with it. <laughs> you know, That's all we can offer. I also think that you framed your um, questions about of what bothers you about the project. And I would say your questions there that you listed there are because you're a good educator. Those are the questions every educator should be asking themselves all the time. What did the kids learn about the topic? Did they feel engaged? And how does it connect to them? Those are natural questions. I'm not sure, you know, you framed it as here's what bothers me about the project. That's what you're still worried about, that that happened because you're a brilliant teaching artist. You're a great educator. Those are the questions that are supposed to be concerning you at the heart of the project. So you're waiting to watch those answers unfold. Yeah. And there's nothing we do in one time or in one sitting in one project where we answer all of those questions to our standard the first time, or that's the process. Well, and I, you know, that's why I keep remembering this, you know, some things are so important, they're worth doing badly. You know, it's like, okay, so let's say that I don't think I did everything that I wish I'd been able to do in this project, but it really is important. And there really will be some big things that come out of it. And 
okay, so everything didn't go perfectly or it didn't work out the way I wanted it to. But, you know, that's the nature of first things and collaborations and so forth. So I hope other teachers understand that, that it's worth taking a risk, even if you really don't know how to do it. Just like dive in there and start figuring it out. There are lots of resources out there. There are people who will help you and there are you know, there's just all sorts of things that will help you. And the kids will help you. They'll help you figure it out. So I can't wait to have this conversation in June after you've had your exhibition and had more conversations and that some of the reward has come back. It takes time. Yeah. Yeah. Lois, thank you so much for sharing this project with us. And we'll be posting photographs of the tile panels on our website. And I'd love to invite our listeners to weigh in on what ideas they have that are catalyzed from your sharing and also maybe ideas they have for what you might think about doing going forward. So listeners, please visit us at our website, www.chillpodcast.com. The Chill Podcast is produced by the BYU Arts Partnership. Special thanks to James Houston for editing, Tavin Barrowman for the artwork, and Scott Fox for the music. If you like what you've heard, please leave a review. This helps tremendously as we work to bring more people to our chill conversations. You can find the show notes and more about chill at thechillpodcast.com or on social media. Our handle is at thechillpodcast. And that's chill, C-H-L-L, for Callie, Heather, Lois, and Louise. We can't wait to chill with you next time. 